very good morning to you on a bonus episode of the Read Indeed podcast. I'm sidestepping the usual DX style podcast to bring you this bonus episode. It's launch week for the book, launch week for You Are Not a Fraud, A Scientist's Guide to the Imposter Phenomenon. I am still sighing relief through numbness that the book is finally out there. I've been working so many straight nights on it for so many years that it's actually strange to have it out there. Strange, weird, all manner of things and then exciting and then exhilarating. I'm loving it. I've had some endearing feedback so far. It's awesome to see some photographs privately from friends who've got the book delivered to them. I'm I'm loving it. I'm loving the ride so far. And I hope that you'll consider grabbing a copy as well. I will put links to all territories where the book is currently available. We've got ebook, paperback, and hardback out on all Amazon territories. I think it has just gone live on Barnes and Noble, which is strange to say out loud, but we're working on even broader distribution than that. And just yesterday, I submitted for review the audiobook version of You Are Not A Fraud. So it's out there, it's coming on all platforms, hopefully in all parts of the world very soon, but the current live links to where you can grab your copy will be in the description of this podcast. Without, without, without further ado, I wanted to bring you this bonus episode that is an interview that I've had on ice for some time, uh, an interview recorded some months back, but was respectfully embargoed until a particular article appeared in the press. That is, I was kindly hosted by freelance writer Rachel Brazil, who was researching a piece on managing failure. Rachel reached out to me, knowing some of the work that had gone on, some of the seminars I'd delivered around the book in preparation for it, and she wanted some thoughts of mine on managing failure. I will also, apart from all the links to grabbing the book, I'll put links to Rachel's final article and the output of this podcast in the description. So please do go check it out. Rachel's article is How to Deal with Failure, published in Chemistry World on the 23rd of June this year, 2022. So what you're about to hear is the unedited interview between Rachel and myself. We recorded the interview over Zoom when we did it back in May, I think it was, maybe even earlier than that, I can't remember. So what I'm going to do is play the interview for you now, and if you hang around after the interview, I will give you a short excerpt, a short reading atop Chapter 6 of You Are Not a Fraud, which, to this very theme of today, is titled Failing Better. I hope you find some value in this conversation between Rachel Brazil and myself on managing failure, and I hope you'll hang around for the short reading of chapter six when the interview is said and done. Here we go. Good to meet you. You too. How are you doing? (laughs) Uh, I am well. This is the first breath I've taken in about two hours. <laughs> I was uh, I was in the lab with some of my students this morning. Um, uh, long story short, playing around with some new toys we haven't quite figured out yet, but it's all good fun. Sounds fun, yeah. Yeah. Well, so hopefully, um, 
this uh, our next discussion on failure will not uh, will not be too um, relevant to, to your this morning's session. <laughs> <laughs> I am writing this article on um, sort of how to deal with failure, and I'm quite. I know you'd written a little bit on that topic, and I'm sort of quite interested in um, sort of. I think I think um, that there's a sort of narrative now that. Science, well, I mean, which is, I think, true that you know, science is that it, failure is a sort of inevitable part of doing science, uh, and that it can also sometimes be useful. And I think there is also there have also been some research showing that you know, early early failure in a career could actually help in terms of improving your sort of ability to um, to improve on that. Um, but I do also yeah. think that there is some. It can sometimes be a bit disingenuous because well, we all know in academic careers it's there's such a lot of pressure to produce results to publish um and, and your and your career advancement is is contingent on that so there's a sort of limited window of failure i guess that's a, that's allowed and so what i was interested in discussing with you and others is sort of how um, established researchers sort of deal with this have a strategy to sort of deal with you know how much failure you can take um the kind of strategies you use to balance risk i guess um so if it's all right i mean i just mm. sort of wanted to kind of go through some questions and really discuss that issue with you yeah i mean that sounds yeah. fascinating you've raised, raised so many layers of the same onion there i'm yeah. interested to see where we go yeah yeah, yeah well, please fire just, away just um talk at me i mean um so the first question is really sort of personally and how do you think about that balance between sort of risk and success and failure and when you're deciding sort of what you want to start working on you know mm. how do you balance that how do you choose um what might work what can potentially fail and getting that balance right yeah and, and short that is desperately difficult and not something no pun intended, I haven't always succeeded at. So maybe bringing in a part of your very helpful setup, there are, there are different dimensions to this. So in terms of thinking about the side of problems that we might want to tackle that we think can be solved, sometimes that is in danger of being a little bit of a over-risk mitigation. You mentioned quite rightly some of the incentives we dare say pressures to to publish to produce and uh, i think rather inevitably that side of things can um, influence you more than you think it does that's to say um you know there's there's often a joke amongst academics that you salami slice your work you know you'll put out a paper of a, a, a small amount of work where you could have perhaps given a fuller story that you're keeping back for the next publication because you need a next publication or at least this is the um uh, this is possibly the way that many look at it i don't want to uh, over generalize what could be very particular to me um, but having said that you know I, I i say this with some reflection on my own experience there have been times in my career where we work on something we don't know that it'll work 100 percent, but we know that there's a good chance it'll work. It's more incremental than transformative. It's building on a, a an own story rather than writing an entirely new one. So that's one part of it. However, you know, uh, the fullness of your question, there are times, and I'm glad looking back on it, that I've taken those chances in time 
where I have zero idea that if something will work. And in fact, there's an overwhelming likelihood for many reasons, bureaucratic and otherwise, that it probably won't. The science is adventurous, but also the means with which to get the science supported is desperately difficult. Either it's something that is not within a well-defined category or pigeonhole, something that requires a lot of people to come together, um, more money than a particular career stage would make you eligible to apply for, and so on and so forth. So um, perhaps an example of the latter, um, uh, again, I say this is a, a particular experience and try to come to something general afterward, but I think in the last three or four years, the most risky thing that I've attempted personally with uh, our research team is to work on applications of safety within chemistry and specifically look at things like virtual reality technologies as a means of training people to a higher benchmark uh, and being proactively aware, ready, engaged with things that could go wrong in the lab or, or larger manufacturing settings. At the outset of that, you know, to try and generalise it to others who might be thinking along these lines, that was a problem for which I had zero expertise in the beginning, no idea of where to get funding, who to speak to, how many dimensions to that problem there would be. I had personal circumstances and drivers from within chemistry to try to pursue that. I could have stopped there. I've, I've spent probably the last five minutes giving possible excuses as to how that might never have started. And I think that's one of the things that will put a lot of people off. And um, we might speak later about feelings of the imposter phenomenon, which is another dimension of this I've worked a little bit on. Um, and I think all of those things can stack up to make someone convince themselves that it's not worth giving it a go. All of those reasons that I've laid out are a combination of external factors and internal challenges. I think um, uh, mentally convincing yourself that you can't do this. Let me try come to some conclusion here as to why I think that was worth a risk, even though it was overwhelmingly likely that it wouldn't succeed. Having dabbled a little bit in psychology, one of the most powerful areas of research I've come across in recent times is the study of end of life and regret. And uh, citing researchers like Adam Alter and others, there's a growing body of evidence out there to suggest that the things that people regret most at the end of life is, is what they didn't do rather than what they did. Uh, people can handle mistakes much better than they can missed opportunities. It's very difficult for well, different psychological reasons for any of us to think long-term. The longer term we think, the more vague and obscure it gets and the less tangible it becomes, so we tend not to think about it as much. But that long-term perspective and being simply aware of that, I think has indirectly helped motivate me to try these things because I know that the older version of myself will have infinitely more regret if I had never tried it in the first place. So that's the, uh, you know, uh, if I'm being my own devil's advocate, that's now the, the polished response that I've come to give myself because I've spent many years trying to find these things and use them to build new tools in the repertoire of how to deal with such failures. It wasn't always the case that I could even think about anything more risky um, and beyond incremental, let's say, from a professional perspective. 
you know, I've, I've been quite open in the past and I've been writing about it for this imposter phenomenon work that at the outset of my academic career, when I was, uh, you know, let's say an early stage postdoc looking for independent academic fellowships, I did not handle my first failure at all well. Um, I felt that I had worked very hard, almost somewhat entitled that I could be put on a shortlist for a particular fellowship. I wasn't shortlisted for that. And at that time, I wasn't aware that that one failure would become two, would become four, would become eight and so on. Um, I hadn't been exposed to that level of repeated rejection, let's say, um, in my past. And so it was an entirely new experience for which I didn't really have the toolkit to deal with. Um, but that at the same time, I think having some level of self-awareness is what catalyzed me to try and search for better ways to deal with that. And what you referred to uh, kindly and what I've written about in more recent years are the stories of others in and out of academia that I've found that really help place a broader perspective on the whole notion of what failure is and what repeated rejection is and, and what you can do with it. For, a, for instance, uh, if I may, one of the most compelling collection of cases I've found is the story of writers, um, writers past and present, writers of fiction and non-fiction, those who have their Wikipedia pages and their stamp of success on history. But many of them, I think of uh, like Beatrix Potter, Zora Rayburn, uh, William Sarayan, Stephen King, um, and many others, those are to name but a few who have not one rejection, but piles of rejections from publishers before their first book ever saw a dust jacket. And I think that was compelling for two reasons. Insightful because it showed some other form of authorship that could have repeated rejection. And it was also outside of academia, which I think is also part of the issue that we can, uh, inside academia, live too much in the bubble as to think that these issues are particular to the academic system or the academy uh, en masse. Uh, this is not the case. And it was refreshing to me, at least in particular terms, to, to find those stories, to broaden the picture and, and see that wherever I go in life, wherever any of us go in life, these rejections could follow us from one career to the next. Yeah. And so, um, sort of in, in, in the way that you work now, I mean, so for example, when you're putting a, a um, proposal together or something like that, I mean, yeah. sort of how do you approach it in terms of thinking about uh, what, what might fail and do you feel like you need to sort of make your proposal sort of failure-proof or in some way think about the failure, the potential failure up front? Uh, that's an excellent question. I think in many, you can see the the signals of what the answer has to be here in the way that many proposals are templated. That is to say that many demand a risk mitigation statement. Uh, how do you know this is worth even attempting? That's uh, perhaps a veiled way of saying that most proposals 
that if they are put together by the author to show some sort of strength, will have a proof of concept within them. Again, thinking particular to myself first, but I've reviewed many proposals now that I, I can see the same pattern in, that when I was putting together my current fellowship, my UKRI Future Leaders Fellowship, I wouldn't even have hit the send button if that didn't have a section, a paragraph's worth of a story to say, we've cobbled together some code, some technology with some chemicals that do the thing that we think can be done a lot more generally and at scale. So I've got some sense that this could work, but right now we don't have the team, the resource, the dedicated time to explore this broadly and indeed to try to scale it up beyond what you can see here as a modest baby step. So that's, that's uh, I say, in many cases, simply demanded these days to show that you've at least thought about what's the worst case scenario. So the proof of concept is part of that. But the second part in terms of scenario planning is to say, right, okay, this shows promise, but you have to be able to, uh, to prospect a little bit in terms of, and uh, in future tell a little bit as to say, like, this is promising now, but these things could go wrong. If these things transpire, then this is how we can pivot to make the same course worth pursuing. Uh, and so that's not all bad. You know, scenario planning is a really excellent skill to craft, I think. Um, it, it takes you beyond planning to strategizing, you know, what are two different but related things. You can, uh, uh, I think most famously is uh, Mike Tyson that's credited with saying everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. But when you have a strategy, that you've, you've then got different scenarios that play out. But yeah, I think uh, having... You're circling back to your question. It's more often than not you will see proof of concept has to be part of these things. Risk mitigation has to be part of these things. But I think there's a, a more vital point in answering your question that and reflection has benefited me. And it has been a mistake I've corrected. My most recent fellowship, I think, was successful ultimately because I put it in the eyes of many other people before I... I called it an underscore final draft. I had attempted at least four other fellowships before I got this one. None of them succeeded. Um, similar, uh, you know, be it fellowships or um, lectureship applications and things like that, and even positions beyond academia, all of which could come under the umbrella of having to, you know, submit a cover letter, a proposal of sorts, as well as your CV. I think many of those failed because I was fearful in earlier days of showing it to anyone, being a bit paranoid of sharing the ideas, but also just being a little bit, um, uh, maybe overconfident, naive, I dare say, that uh, I could do it all myself. And that having that sort of pre-review stage, colleagues that you could trust to have a, um, a layer of criticism and feedback thrown back at you, I never did that before the, this current fellowship. So yeah, I think in some of the, the proof of concept and risk mitigation is a part of the approach that is now almost sacrosanct. But I'd say for anyone who's dipping their toes in the water that might read your article, one of the other major things is to consider is be able to put it in front of people that you trust before you finalise it. Don't do it all on your own. Right. Hi folks, a quick one during a short break from the interview. 
We're going to be sponsoring the podcast with proceeds from the book, so I wanted to remind you once again that you are not a fraud. A Scientist's Guide to the Imposter Phenomenon is out now. All the links to where you can grab your ebook, paperback, hardback, and soon audio version of the book are all available in the links in the description of the podcast and on the podcast web pages. Thanks for tuning in. Back to the interview. And then, sort of, in terms of um, failure, sort of as you're going along some piece of work, some um, research project. Personally, sort of, how do you deal with, um, I guess, deciding when something is a failure, when to yeah. give up on it, when to start something new? I mean, obviously, there's always the issue of, sort of sunk costs. You've gone this far down below. Yeah. Do you, have you had that sort of point where you've just come to a point you're saying this this has failed? So how how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, you've mentioned in passing there something I think is worth teasing apart a little bit, which is the concept of sunk costs. So I'd mentioned earlier about even just having the awareness of that that concept of what people regret in later life. Similarly, having an awareness of what the sunk cost fallacy is has been game-changing for me to realise that, you know, I'm making a rod for my own back much of the time that because I've put in such blood, sweat and tears that I absolutely have to keep pursuing an idea, whereas it actually might be more valuable and a bigger return on investment to draw a line and move on as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, I, I still say I need to remind myself that, of that a lot. Um, you know, and so sunk cost is a, is a massive part of being able to say this is a failure. However, it, it doesn't fully answer your question. I think in order to be able to, in a most informed sense, decide whether or not to keep going or to draw a line is to figure out the mechanism that gives you the feedback quickest. And even just this morning, thinking about trying a new project with one of our PhD researchers, I found myself thinking, we know we're doing this as a proof of concept for an engagement with a collaborator. And yet my temptation is to try to perfect this. All we're trying to do is to get a data set to be able to have a conversation. And yet my temptation is to keep going until we perfect this. That, that would be an example of thinking, we've, we've put in so much work to get this far, we have to keep going. But what we can do to make that decision both informed and faster to decide whether to keep going or to stop is to just figure out how quickly we can tinker. Not to design, but to tinker. How quickly can we set up an experiment, get data, and see if it fails or, or whether or not it's tinkering again to keep going? Setting up, in general terms, a feedback loop and figuring out how quickly you can do that I think goes a massive way to being able to to making that brave decision about whether this is um, a, a go or no go. Another way I've heard this put is like one of my favourite books of reference for this is one by uh, author and marketer Seth Godin. He's got a book called The Dip, which is, uh, is partly about this concept of figuring out when to keep going and when to stop. Um, and The Dip is essentially... Most people will think they need to stop when that's it's just the rut that they're in. It's the hard part that they need to strive beyond to get the, to the productive stage. But in the same book, he um, he uses the the term cul-de-sac as the opposite case of the dip. You know, as well as being able to spot the dip and when you should keep going, you also need to be able to spot those dead ends. And for me, it's been creating the fastest possible feedback loop 
in order to decide whether to go left or go right. And, and you touched on it a little bit, but obviously a massive mm -hmm. part of dealing with failure is the emotional side of it, but how do we emotionally deal with it? Um, yes. So, I mean, for you, sort of what, what have you found the most useful strategies? What strategies have you developed to sort of emotionally cope with failure? I think reframing it is the first step. Uh, the word itself is troublesome. Um, failures often come with the connotations of being a judge of your own character or your own worth, um, yeah, your own... Um, uh, likelihood or what's a better word uh, privilege or justification to be able to give something a go if, if you frame it as a failure it comes with all of those possible interpretations but we need to break it down a little bit but if we continue the line of thinking about the failures in terms of what research you might do or what experiments you might do. One of the things that I'd written about that you mentioned earlier was to reframe failure as an experiment or a series of experiments. Um, and one of the, the stories that I'd held dear that I'd wrote about was, you know, the likes of James Dyson. You know, if he hadn't been able to frame 5,000 plus failures as 5,000 data points or 5,000 experiments, we wouldn't have the Dyson vacuum cleaner as we know it now. But the same goes for those writers that I mentioned earlier. You know, if the likes of, you know, Stephen King or uh, Stephanie Meyer hadn't taken on 20 or 30 plus rejections, then, you know, we wouldn't have Carrie <laughs> or Pet Cemetery or the Twilight series and so on. Those stories are linked by the fact that each iteration of what could be interpreted as a failure was actually an experiment for which they received feedback on how to continue. I think that's been the major thing for me is just the, even the concept of framing like, is, is the way that I'm thinking about this even the right way to start in this particular case is the word failure really the thing that I should be calling this the, the example to continue earlier stories was if I look back now at my older fellowship drafts or fellowship attempts for you know other funding bodies other job applications. I cringe at some of it now because now looking back, I can see that they were they were rough drafts. There were stumbles along the way to something far more professional and um, just competitive, quite frankly. I think by in those early stages, it's you know you're you're torn between your ambition and the need to give yourself enough of a gestation period to do the training and to take the knocks to be able to, to, uh, to bring it all together into something that looks like the ultimate success. That's really what started, uh, please stop me when I'm going off on too much of a tangent here, but uh, having said that out loud, I think that's one of the things that I first caught myself doing whenever I first started thinking about imposter phenomenon, imposter syndrome. Like in my postdoc days, that was a f the first time I'd made a big career move into a different team. And I saw a lot of people who were 
you know, I deemed very clever or successful or highly published. And I never once stopped to think about their story of how they got there and how, how many times they might have messed things up or how much failure that they'd experienced or, you know, how they might have worked in a different way, had a different set of circumstances and so on and so forth. I never considered any of that. It was just a jump to the finish line of this person has got X, I've only got Y, therefore I'm either a failure or not good enough to be here and so on. And that sort of now you're a little bit more established, I and mean, is it still something that you kind of feel like you have to deal with if you have a sort of knock now, or do you feel a little bit better equipped to deal with it? It still happens and it always will, but you're you hit the nail in the head and that I feel better equipped. I um, you, you can almost uh, I think as anyone grows in their own self awareness, you you are essentially cultivating the ability to be able to look at yourself almost in the third person, um, slightly out of body experiences to be able to come out of yourself and look back down at about what you and that mortal coil is experiencing now I just feel that every time these things come up, every time, let's say, um, I get, you know, the, the dear John letter to say that, you know, we had many applications that were competitive. We've not selected you in this occasion. I still get those, um, at least quarterly, but feel a lot better now about my place in that and that I can use that feedback even if it's very minimal to say, right, okay, it's clearly not hitting the right markers here for that sort of collaboration. What can I try next time? Or who can I go speak to to figure out how I might tune this better? Whereas in the past, that was just complete dejection uh, and a will to go and cry on a pillow somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I don't do that now, but I can see at every turn the temptation to revert to that. It's, just, it's simply the awareness of all of these tools that we've spoken about and continuing to try and find others. Same goes for any time that I'm, you know, speaking with a peer or a colleague that I, I look up to and I think, you know, they're much better than me and all these different dimensions and all these um, semi-poisonous metrics that we're sort of encouraged to judge ourselves by. You know, all of those things aren't going away and therefore, not all of those temptations remain to say, I'll compare myself on this dimension. And it's very likely that I'm going to have the the urge to call myself an imposter or not good enough or not qualified to be here. This is why I've, one of the main things I've strived to do whenever I've had the chance to speak about this publicly is to deter people from using terms like cure or overcome or crush or quash all of these things set you up for the disappointment of when they return in another form. Whereas if you go into it knowing that what you're doing is managing it and being able to come to terms with something that will be like an old friend that will be with you forever, that's a far, again, it's about framing. It's a far more productive frame in which to look at the problem because then you know what to expect, even although there are many things in your life you can't possibly expect. Mm -hmm. like, everything is the unknown, right? But if you go on into that with the certainty that you've at one stage in your life crushed it, then if it comes back in some other form by a different trigger, that's when you set yourself up for the real harm mentally. Yeah.
Right. And sort of lastly, just sort of looking back at, um, the, I guess, the role failure has played in your career. Do you think you're, without it, you might be better off, worse off? Sort of what, what role do you think it has in actually shaping your career? Without a doubt, infinitely better. Because uh, I, I, if I, uh, I strawman my own arguments here, the, if this was a debate rather than an interview, uh, someone could quite easily say, yeah, it's fine for you to say this now because you're in this position. You know, but it was as early as last year that it could have been so very different. You know, I've had periods in my career where I have been without a job between academic appointments and f facing the job centre and the infinite number of applications and the fear that I wouldn't be able to look after my family. You know, th those are the real dark things that people rarely speak about once you see someone that looks quote unquote successful. The the final thing that I'd written about that, I, that we are speaking about today, a, a final concept that's helped me see that why I can be so confident that those failures have made me better is the concept of anti-fragility and the fact that being able to face these things really sings the praises of what we are capable of as humans, as people. Like when we take these knocks, we uh, as biological systems grow from that feedback. If you never have that feedback, if you never take these knocks, be them physical or mental, you're never giving your body or mind any fuel with which to grow from those things. And you know, you could see this more generally in terms of the 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 attitudes or the the readiness for failure in certain portions of undergraduate communities for whom mental health struggles are all the stats tell you they're going in one direction, they're all increasing. And part of that is how well are we preparing our students to become warriors of the world when we never, if we never tell them that these things can happen and will happen as their careers go. So that's why I think it's, it, uh, there's a discomfort in this because, you know, having the privilege to tell stories like this of my own, it's very, very easy to say my story the way I want it. And you sort of give yourself a hero worship in a way but people need to know that the way you are now is not the way that you've always been. And that, you know, success just doesn't come on a red carpet, you know, and, and anyone that they idolize, it's very rarely the case that they were ever in that position because a red carpet was laid out for them. Yes, there's a few folks in the world born with a silver spoon. We can't deny that for sure. But learning the fullness of someone's story, and I think as leaders, in the academic institution, I think it's our duty to be able to share the fullness of our story so that the students in our care don't get a distorted view of how things really are. Brilliant. Great, thank you so much. Is there any, anything we've sort of not covered that you think is important? Uh, well, I think we we could go on forever. I'm actually just curious. Um, mm. You know, you were you you were very helpful in the beginning and setting up like why you were interested in this. But, but I, I, 
I'm curious to learn more about like, how this ever came up in the first place. You know, what, you know, what is it that made this become uh, an article for you? What is it that, that you were pursuing in the beginning that's made you think about failure yourself in more depth? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think um, I, did, I saw sort of reference to an article which was talking about um, I, I, the issue of um, failure being useful in careers. And, and I think it was a paper from 2019. I'll have to look up who yeah, the authors yeah. were, but it, but it was actually looking at um, postdocs um, and their, their co- sort of who had experienced some, some failure and, Sort of how they had gone on in their careers and, and sort of seemed to indicate that if you have that early failure, it can kind of help you um, be more successful later. And I, and I did think, I, I was just very interested <laughs> I think that that clearly has some truth in it, but then there, there, there is also at the moment, um, I recently wrote a piece on kind of issues and problems in research culture, and there's obviously clearly big issues with um, how competitive it is to get a position and how, therefore, yeah. you know, you have to be able to present this sort of stellar CV at a fairly early stage to sort of get your mm-hmm. foot on the ladder. And just I was very interested in that juxtaposition of, well, how do we give people, how do you manage a career so that you can yeah. come out with that stellar sort of CV that will get you that job, but, you know, still have to have gone through those sorts of failures. And so, so how do you juggle that all? Um, and so I was just sort of interested in talking to some people on and, and getting their take on that and how they deal with it. And I think it is still perhaps one of the most difficult things that, um an early career researcher is going to have to juggle with because obviously if you, you, you need to have some element of risk and some some risk taking in what you do if yeah. you want to produce something novel original exciting but yeah. it, that could, you can just really imagine that could then take you down some horrendous path where you end up with nothing so it it, it seems like a real 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 sort of juggling trick well, I, I actually, I'm super glad I asked. There's a few things that resonate there that I have really forgotten. So I think I'll, I'll butcher pronunciation here, but I, I, I know the paper you're talking about because um, I've cited it in a book chapter I've been writing on rejection. I think it's Amanda Haig or Haga in terms of how it's uh, written. Um, so apologies for butchering that. But the... Well, I think what you're alluding to there is in that paper, assuming again that we're talking about the same one, one of the most insightful stats that came out of that in terms of how what postdocs made all the way through to an academic post, one of the most statistically significant markers was how many applications they had put in. And the more applications postdocs put in, the more chance they had at an interview and therefore the better chance they had to show themselves in the flesh and how they were the right person for the job. And that, I think, in a, in a nutshell, covers a lot of what we've spoken about. It's it's taking more chances rather than fewer. You know, it's not a flip of a coin. It could be the flip of 50 coins. And that paper was a really good example of that. But where it also touches on the sort of um, more tangibly, ta- um, tangibly summarizes some of the things we spoke about is using the tool of a CV of failures that like you've quite rightly mentioned there that were o- overwhelmingly incentivized to make our CV, uh, you know, uh, uh, luminous with accolades, but never considered the sister document of a CV of failures. And, and a few, like Megan Stefan, um, Johannes Haushofer, they popularized this concept about five years ago. 
Um, and I really took that on board and several others have now, but I now have that on my website next to my CV. Like, I think that's, you know, that's my attempt to action behind these words, like to, to show a bit of leadership here and say that, you know, this isn't all roses. You know, there's been a lot of proverbials that had to be waded through first and that list isn't going to stop growing. So I think, you know, as, a, as an exercise, everyone could do that. You know, everyone could have a CV of failures and you don't need to make it public, but as an exercise, it will most certainly help you see the fullness of your effort. Yeah. Brilliant. Great. Well, thank you so much. That was um, all my oh, questions. Um, I hope. Nice yeah, thank you. That was really, really useful. That's given me um, loads to go on. I hope it was useful for you as well. Um, it is a very, really interesting issue. Um, I, I guess was something that everybody, everybody is struggle, struggling with one way or another sort of throughout and as sure you said it's not something that you ever kind of leave behind it's always something you're sort of struggling with and thinking about yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, there are there are no quick and easy answers and in the, in the fullness of the story of failure is a difficult one but a worthy one to pursue yeah, in its fullness yeah. and don't don't just take one part of it don't spotlight one part of it you need to see a fuller story yeah obviously something that you've you're sort of quite interested in kind of reflecting on kind of the, the sort of mechanics of kind of, of, of your career. I mean, is that something you've always, you've always felt? The mechanics of it, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, I mean, I think a well, lot of people I, I are just I'm not that self-reflective, you know, a lot of people yeah. just get on with things. And... <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, I think by my core, an overthinker, you know, that's probably part of the thing that's um, fed into feeling like an imposter at times, but I, uh, I, I, that part is never switched off for me. I'm always self-reflecting. Sometimes it's it's obviously been helpful to then incentivize finding some tools that help. But then when it's never switched off, yeah, you're always looking at you know why things are why why did I do things this way and not another way. But yeah, put, I mean, I, you know, my career choice has been as a as a scientist, right? I'm a physical organic chemist by training, so I've always been interested in finding what the numbers are behind. The design of a particular reaction let's say so you know that's that's just a that's a part of my bread and butter as much as is a part mm -hmm. of my character so yeah it's, it's always there in some form and i guess that you know that the the day job has bled over into me trying to do that in my personal life as well yeah well i'm sure it's a, it's certainly useful to you and i'm sure it's useful to others as well so i think yeah, a lot of people will find that find the you know that really really interesting um i do i think it's i mean, I, I'm, I, I think obviously you're certainly right and, and it's certainly the right attitude to take in thinking of failure to sort of understand that everybody goes through this but i think it's difficult for all of us have that you know we, we do look at other people and it is difficult to there are and I, i'm sure i can't stop thinking i'm sure there are some people out there who've had a really easy ride <laughs> never never experienced like, it's probably not true but i think you can't stop yourself thinking well that person they've never had any problems you know but all oh, the stars and the planets have aligned for yeah. a few they, yeah. they probably don't see it that way but anyway <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much. Great speaking to you, Mark. I think this, uh, as I said, I think it's it'll come out um, later in the year. I'll, I'll let you know. I look forward to it. Brilliant. Great speaking to you. Good luck. Cheers, Rachel. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
And so there you have it. That was the interview between Rachel Brazil and myself on managing failure. I hope you found some nuggets in there. I hope you found some enjoyment, some use, some value, some things to take away, some prompts, some considerations. Whatever it is that you took away, as promised, I'm back with a very short reading from chapter six, the chapter that most closely relates to what Rachel and I spoke about. That's chapter six from You Are Not a Fraud, titled Failing Better. There is no doubt that you will have people you admire and look up to. Despite what your imposter thoughts would make you assume about these people, no one is ever perfectly produced, not from any place or from any time. And yet, there remains the temptation to assume the success of those in your sphere has somehow been endowed. While your efforts towards a goal feel like drudgery, their achievements look divinely inspired. Why is that? What do we often forget to place in context? Even if you think you are too young, too old, too specialised, too niche or too novice to apply yourself to an opportunity, you are none of these things. They are, on the other hand, exquisite excuses to avoid ever trying or ever failing. Whether you're on an academic track like me, or part of another profession entirely. Failure is part of your footpath. Fear of that failure plays right into the hands of the imposter phenomenon. That's a reading from Chapter 6, Failing Better. One more time, folks, you are not a fraud. I'm delighted to say it's now available on ebook, paperback and hardback. All links to where the book is currently available are in the description of the podcast. Audio is coming soon. All other copies are available now. I hope you'll check it out. I hope you'll find some use in it. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. And I will see you again soon for another regular episode of the Read Indeed podcast. Be well. Take care.